This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This episode is brought to you by The Felder Report. Each week I go through a ton of reading and research, and I put the best of what I found into a free weekend email. It goes out Saturday mornings. You can sign up for at thefelderreport.com. Just go to the site right there on the homepage. It says join now. Click that, put in your email address, and you'll be all set. My guest for this episode is Roger McNamee. And to be honest, I was really stoked to get Roger on the show for two reasons, really. First, because he has a just fascinating career, which he goes into in major detail. And in fact, I hardly get a word in edgewise for the first hour of this podcast because he just so passionately um, explains why he was so successful and goes through it uh, in in great detail. But uh, the second reason I wanted to talk to Roger was because there's been a ton of tech insiders coming out recently talking about the dangers of these um, big, major uh, tech players. And none of them have uh, as unique or uh, as much of an inside view as Roger has. He was the um, one of the first investors in Facebook. He convinced Mark Zuckerberg not to sell Facebook to Yahoo for a billion dollars, a story he talks about in this episode. Uh, he also introduced Sheryl Sandberg to Mark when they were trying to figure out how to monetize the platform. So he has a unique perspective on all of this. And while I did have a minor audio issue in recording Roger that clips a part of a word or two, it really doesn't get in the way of his phenomenal storytelling and his overall message. So please enjoy my conversation with Roger McNamee. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep. And sheep get slaughtered. Roger McNamee, welcome to the show. I'm really honored to have you. Um, thank you for doing this. Hey, it couldn't be. It's a great pleasure. I'm just really happy to be here. Awesome. Um, let's just start at the beginning. Um, how did you, I know you have a, a long history in, in the world of finance and how did you first become interested in investing and where did you get your start? It, 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 it's a funny thing. Um, I grew up in a really large family and I'm the second youngest in a family where the, uh, the oldest one was 18 years older than I am. And my parents had six children of their own and adopted three. And the three they adopted were older. And the result was, by the time I came along, I was the product of benign neglect. And I got to tell you, if you ever have a choice, grow up in a really huge family where you get raised by your older siblings because uh, it really is uh, a very special thing. All their wisdom gets passed along a lot more easily than parental wisdom. But in my particular case, my father was an entrepreneur. And he started a little stock brokerage business in Albany, New York. And by the time I came along, the business was really struggling because uh, Wall Street changing rapidly in the late 50s and early 60s. And it was really hard to keep the business afloat. And so my father worked six days a week. And my little brother and I, in order to spend any time with him at all, used to spend Saturdays with him at the office. So imagine this is like in when I'm in first and second grade. So very, very early 60s. And 
so I spent all this time playing with Bunker Ramo machines, you know, which were the old versions of stock quote machines. And they had this little cathode ray tube that was, I don't know, maybe three inches by three inches. And, you know, so it was a little teeny T and you could press these buttons and letters and numbers would come up. And I had no idea what any of it meant, but it was really fun to play with them. And I never thought of myself as being the kind of person who would go into the investment business. I had a summer job there one summer and it was the most boring thing on earth. I was processing purchase and sales transactions and it was honest to God, I was ready to jump out the office window on the eighth floor. And so I I was convinced this was not for me. When I was in after my sophomore year in college, my girlfriend decided she wanted to go to California. And she wanted me to go with her. So I threw her off from school and went with her. And sadly, my father died almost right away after that. So I had to, I was essentially economically independent from that point forward. And had, if I wanted to go back to college, I was going to have to stay out for quite a while to earn enough money to go back. And it happened that in San Francisco, where I was living, there was a TV show every morning, or at least every weekday morning, that was about the stock market. And so I watched it every morning. And after about six months or nine months of watching it every morning and like reading the newspaper, I decided I was going to buy a stock called Beach Aircraft. And Beach made turboprops. They made the King Air turboprop. And I thought, you know, air, airplanes are really cool. And, you know, the, I had no idea whether the demand was going to be good or bad. I thought the plane was really cool. And so I screwed up my courage and I bought a few shares. And the stock went from 20 to 26 bucks in like three days. And I thought I was the second coming of Jay Gould. I mean, I seriously, this was just pure <laughs> dumb luck. This was like taking a lottery ticket and winning the lottery. And I had, at that point, I had the buck. And so I started to, re- you know, I really paid attention. And I tried a few other things. Again, really small amounts, you know, because I didn't have any money. But I was earning money. And so effectively, I was buying and selling the money that was going to allow me to go back to college. And I did well enough. It was a tough period. It was like, uh, we're talking 1976 to 78. It was a period where the market was volatile and some stocks went up, some went down. There was a decent period for small cap and I got lucky. I happened to put some money in some small cap things. So I did pretty well. Long story short, when I went back to college you know, I was really focused. I worked really hard, but I had no idea to get a job working on Wall Street. Like I had no concept of how to do that. And I didn't realize you could get a job actually investing. The people would get paid to do that. And keep in mind, my father at that point, you know, he was dead. So I had nobody to ask and I was very introverted. And so I was, I was too shy to ask other people. So I go back to college and I meet this incredible woman my senior year. And she was finishing a, she was a very young graduate student finishing a PhD and I was a very old undergraduate. We fell in love instantly. Basically I took her on a date to go see the Garcia band and she was uh, getting a PhD in music theory. And she assumed Jerry Garcia was like a cellist or something. She goes, what instrument is Mr. Garcia playing? I go, no, he's a, he's a rock guitarist. So she comes to the show and we have a great time. We go to 10 Grateful Dead shows like in the next two months, at which point I realized this is the woman I'm going to spend the rest of my life with. You know, she's a PhD and she's really into the dead. So I'm like totally happy. She gets offered in her field the only tenure track position in the country, which is at Swarthmore College outside of Philadelphia. And the only job I was able to get through uh, college was at Procter & Gamble, which was in 
Cincinnati, Ohio. And I couldn't see any way to make that work. I mean, it wasn't a, there was no nonstop flight. I mean, it was just, that was never going to work. So I decided to go to grad school and I go to business school at Dartmouth for two years. So imagine I'm trying to commute from Hanover, New Hampshire to Philadelphia. I mean, I'm doing this literally on buses and trains and it took half a day each time I did it. So I did it like every three or four weeks and I had no money. So, I mean, bus was basically the way I did it. And while I was at business school, I discovered, oh, my gosh, you can get paid to be an investment analyst. I'd been a history major in college. I like doing research. I like reading, right? I'm an introvert. And so I think to myself, this is cool. And my brother, bless his heart, in uh, the year that I get a, I'm getting out of college, he gives me a speaking spell. And I don't know if you remember, this is a play school toy for kids that basically would you could type letters in and it would sound them out. When you made a word, it would tell you what the word was. It would say it out loud. So for little kids to learn how to spell. And my brother handed him this thing and said, you know, if you can get this thing to speak this way, this means you're going to be able to make a device that you hold in your hand that will hold all your personal information. He said this in like, this is Christmas 1978. Wow. Yeah, And I'm thinking to myself, that's really cool. So when I went back to college, I start, I took a couple of electrical engineering courses, which if you ask any electrical engineer, it's the weirdest thing on earth because I'd never taken calculus. I didn't know calculus. And so I'm taking all these engineering courses without any math. It was a nightmare. And I cut a deal with a teacher who said, basically, I can't give you an A no matter what because you can't do the math. But if you get everything else right, you beat. So I said, that's a good deal. I'll do that. So when I get to grad school, I've already had a couple electrical engineering courses. I'm trying to figure out how to make this handheld device that will hold all your information. And, of course, I was hopelessly unprepared to do this, but I, I was making schematics. I was trying to figure it out. I was, you know, reading part catalogs and all this other kind of stuff to try to figure out how to do it. And it was clearly possible to make something with a really limited capability. And I get to grad school, and I discover, wait a minute, I can get a job being a research channel. And I couldn't get it for the summer. So for the summer, I went to work at Goldman Sachs in New York in the municipal bond department, which for me was as bad as that purchase and sales job I had when I was 16. I mean, it was literally a, you know, if the windows opened up, I would have jumped out of the 22nd floor and killed myself. It was it was one of those things where at the end of the summer, I just couldn't wait to get out of there. And Goldman Sachs wasn't interested in a person who worked in muni bonds going into investment research. So I just blew them off and started looking elsewhere. And the folks at T. Rowe Price in Baltimore, mutual fund company in Baltimore, their entire team left to start their own firm in January of 1982. And they were stuck because they'd already... Um, missed all the deadlines for on-campus recruiting for business schools. And they had a hole. They needed three research channels. And they didn't have any candidates. I had sent them a resume, you know, just kind of cold call. And it was sitting in a file, apparently with two others, a guy from Virginia and a guy from Wisconsin. I get this phone call from the director of research. I'm just coming out of the shower. I'm dripping wet. I have a towel around my waist. And he goes, Hi. This is Jack Laporte. I'm the director of research at T. Rowe Price Associates. And I go, wow, that's great. I just got out of the shower. I'm dripping wet. Can I call you back? He says, "Now nah, let's do the interview right now. So I get interviewed <laughs> on the phone, dripping wet. He said, after the interview, he calls me back and he goes, we'd like you to come to Baltimore. I'd never been to Baltimore. 
I take my uh, bus to Springfield, Massachusetts. I get on the train. I ride to Baltimore. It's Baltimore close to Philadelphia, right? It's, I don't know, 75 miles, something like that. So it's it's like close enough. And uh, I go down there, and I'm there sort of one afternoon and evening and the whole next day. And I just love the place. The first person I'd meet was a woman named Abby Joseph Cohen. She left here. She was the uh, number two economics person at T. Rowe. And she left there to become the economist at Goldman Sachs. And she was the voice of Wall Street economics in the 80s. Right. 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 Yeah. And so she's like the first person. I'm, oh, my God, I love her. She's awesome. She's like, you know, a family person, really, really smart. But like me, introverted and quiet. And then a woman named Deborah Diamond, who was like, uh, did healthcare, just a total genius. And I, I come from a family of very strong women, so I'm I, I like working in an environment where where they're um, professional women because, in my experience, the decision making process that they use uh, is one that works particularly well investing. So I was really psyched that at T Row they had these really prominent women, and that for whatever reason, two of the first three people meet are women. Anyway, it's really obvious to me by the time I'm getting done that there's no way they're going to give me a job. And the reason they're not going to give me a job is because my older brother is running the brokerage firm that my father started, which is no longer struggling. It's not doing great, but it's not struggling anymore. And they're probably convinced I'm just there to do two years before I go to work for the family firm. So I asked my wife on the phone at night, I go, I want to, I really like this place. I want a job here. Do you mind if I just throw caution to the wind and try a crazy strategy? Go, sure. You should do it. it I mean, you don't have any other options. You're not going to get the job. Only there's no downside. So I, I go to the, I go to the director of research. I said, I go in for my closing interview and I go, Ed, I think I belong at this firm, but I don't think you're going to give me a job. And there are three reasons why I don't. I don't think you're going to give me a job. And I enumerate them. And I see his eyes getting bigger and bigger. Then there's a pause about 15 or 20 seconds when I'm done, about a minute and a half to do it. And he goes, he said, that is unbelievable. I go, what do you mean? He said, no one has ever used that technique before. I'm going, what do you mean technique? He goes, look, I wasn't going to give you a job. And there were three reasons I wasn't going to give you a job. And you enumerated them, and you got them in the correct order. He said, look, we're in the business of hiring people who are really good evaluators, analyzers of situations, right? We're looking for research people. they got to be able to read the people they're around. Anybody who could read us that well, we got to hire. I'm going to give you an offer right now. <laughs> so anyway, I go to work there, and I arrive my first day of work, and this is the most important thing that people can take out of this entire conversation. I started my career at Tierra Price on the first day of the bull market of 1982. In an industry where timing is everything, I literally picked the single best day to enter that you could have possibly had in a period of 50 years. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and they put me on tech. Right. Which is an industry that when you look at it, there's literally no better place to have been for the last 35 years. 
So I literally have perfect timing and randomly get put into the one sector I'm most excited about. Yeah. I mean, it was nuts. So here's the thing. You can explain my entire career on the basis of, of dumb luck that in modern portfolio theory, they'll tell you, you know, active management in the long run can't outperform the market. The thing they don't tell you is that the market has hundreds of millions of participants, which means statistically the tails of the distribution are going to tens of thousands of people who for 35 years can outperform the market on the basis of pure dumb luck. And I just want you to know I'm completely prepared to accept the notion that I am one of those people. So if you can control anything, my friend, control your starting date. That's lesson number one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, make sure you have good fortune, right? Exactly. Just make sure you're incredibly good. lucky. If you're incredibly <laughs> lucky, everything else takes care of itself. So anyway, right. I get to T. Rowe, and it turns out I am so woefully unprepared to be an investment analyst, it's embarrassing. And I get there. They say to me, look, we need you to do two different subsectors in this area. We need you to do... You know, at that time, keep in mind, summer of 82, the IBM PC shipped a year earlier, but there was no PC industry yet, right? The, the, the only way to play it was IBM, and it wasn't an important part of their business. And at Intel, they were mostly a memory company. And so it really, there was no PC sector. So you basically, there was a mini computer analyst, a mainframe analyst. And defense electronics. Those were the three things. So they said, you're going to do software, which wasn't really an industry, like five stocks that did mainframe software. And you're going to do defense electronics. Well, the director of research, that guy who hired me, had been had been a defense analyst right up until before I got there. And um, so he said, I'm going to keep an eye on you and help you try to do this right. Well, I didn't know what I was doing and trying to do two sectors I just flailed. And after six months, the guy who hired me takes me out to lunch, puts his arm on my shoulder, says, Roger, you could be a lot of different things. And he said, if things don't improve here in a big hurry, you're going to have to look for one of them. Now, me being very practical and desperately needing the job, I went back to my office, walked into director research and said, I'm going to give up one of the two sectors I'm covering. Since you did defense, I'm going to do defense electronics and learn directly from you so I don't get fired. The guy goes, okay, no problem. So I did that and made a whole bunch of good calls. Remember, this is the beginning of the Reagan defense buildup, right? And so it was classic fish in a barrel kind of situation. And, uh, you know, I bought some Laurel and a few other things, and they all worked out great. And so, I, you know, relative to my peers, I was a laggard because I got off to a slow start, but at least I was no longer failing. And essentially, in 1985, they decided that the flagship emerging growth fund at T. Rowe, which is called the uh, New Horizons Fund, needed different management. The guy who had... Uh, the head tech guy working for it had uh, basically had his career blown up because tech stocks were in free fall. The thing that everybody forgets is that as the PC industry started, if you were a public and market investor, you couldn't participate. But all the things that made mini computers and mainframes were getting killed. So tech in a bull market, tech was just getting cream. So the guy who'd been running that sector, his career was fried. And the guy before that had literally died on the job. 
And so there was this sense that whoever ran that sector of the, of the New Horizons Fund was a, it was a career-ending opportunity. So they handed it to me, which meant for the first time I was going to get to cover <laughs> commercial tech, not just military tech, which meant PCs and everything else. So I took that, and, they, and then immediately after that, they said, you know what? We're going to do a competition. We're going to break the New Horizons Fund into five sectors, have five people essentially compete for a year. Whichever one does best relative to their index is going to run the whole fund. Well, I made a couple of really lucky calls, and as a result, landing that thing, at which point they moved the goalposts. And they said, well, Roger, you did win, and we did tell you that, but that's not what we're going to do. We're going to put the director of research in charge of the fund, and you're going to be his uh, his number two. You're going to be the co-manager, and you'll be responsible for all of tech. And we think you're good enough, and tech is such a big sector, you know, it might be as much as 40 or 50% of the fund. And I didn't have a choice, so I took it. It was my chance to be a money manager. Then a year later, they decide we're going to, or a year and a half later, they decide they're going to start a technology fund called the Science and Technology Fund. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, well, obviously, I'm the tech guy. They're going to ask me. But no, they gave it to two other guys, right? Well, they started that fund September 30th of 1987. And I don't know if you remember the history of 1987, but September 30th was 19 days before the crash. So they put $10 million of the firm's money and opened this fund up. And 19 days later, the thing's down 31%. Wow. I mean, there was like a smoking crater where that fund was. Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm running the sector of the tech of, of New Horizons Fund, and in spite of the crash, I'm doing really well relative to all my bogeys because I've decided I don't know anything about mainframes and computers, so I'm just not going to have any money in anything related to that. I'm just going to do PCs because 86 was the year that Microsoft and Oracle and Sun Microsystems, Adobe and Autodesk and Novell and all these guys who wound up being the leaders of that industry, they all went public basically between the end of 85 and the end of 86. And so, you know, I'm having a great ride. Meanwhile, the SciTech fund gets cream. And after six months, they take the two guys who were running it and say, guys, you're too important to us. We're not going to let you kill your career on this fund. And they looked at me and said, uh, how would you like to run it? And I'm going, gosh, you think finally you're going to give it to me? And I said, I'll take it, but on one condition. And they said, what's that condition? That I get to run it my way. So this is where I go back to the issue of the style of investing that I developed. When I arrived at T. Rowe Price in 1982, investment research, this is the days before personal computers were integrated. So spreadsheets were done on pieces of paper and sometimes on chalkboards. And, you know, there, we didn't have personal computers. And analysts stayed at their desk. They might go to one conference a year for their industry, and they might visit their biggest holdings once a year, maybe twice a year, if they weren't too far away. So they made make two or three business trips a year. Now, I was living in Swarthmore, Pennsylvania, and working in Baltimore, Maryland, 75 or 90 miles apart. I forget how far, but, you know. I didn't have a car, so I took the train, and I did the commutes, uh, you know, Sunday and Friday, and spent the work week working. 
But what I realized was this is stupid. The personal computer industry is taking place all over the country, but mostly in California. Why am I hanging out in Baltimore? I don't even live there. I got an apartment, but I don't live there. Why don't I just travel around with the personal computer industry? I mean, there's a conference. Or, I mean, nobody knew what was going on in that industry. It was total chaos. And so what, there would be a conference or a trade show essentially every other week all year long. And everybody traveled around like the circus from town to town. And the same people would show up in different places. And they would basically trade insights. You know, nobody had enough time to read the 50 trade journals and newsletters and things that were out. So what they would do is they would barter. You know, if you had an insight about Microsoft or an insight about Intel microprocessors, you could trade those things. And so I go to one of the leading industry conferences in like near 87, I think. It might have been the end of 86. And I'm just out for a walk. It's in Florida. And I'm out for a walk on the beach. And I come back into the front of the hotel. And there are these two guys unloading a what is obviously a rental car. And what they're unloading is a bunch of Fender Twin amps and guitars. And I go, were you guys at the conference? They go, yeah. I go, you having a jam session? They're going, yeah. I'm going, well, do you mind if I come? And they go, sure. So I go to the jam session. And I'm looking to get there, and it's like the founder of Borland, the co-founder of Microsoft, the chief technology officer of Apple, and a whole bunch of other equally like lofty people in the industry. That's who's in the champ set. Those are the players. Well, it turns out that none of them <laughs> knew more than two or three songs all the way through. I basically earned my spending money in college and grad school by playing music and I'd done happy hour for years so I knew hundreds of songs beginning to end all of a sudden I I discovered I could infiltrate the upper reaches of the personal computer industry on the basis of knowing how to, knowing 200 songs and so I wind up being part of this group which immediately decides now that it could do songs we had to have a name we were called the random Taxes. And within a year, we were invited to play at every conference and trade show, which was it was really fun. So I'm getting to play with people, but I'm developing this personal relationship. You know, there's no other investment people around. In fact, when Borland went public a couple of years later and the CEO comes to my office, he looks at me, does this double take, goes, what are you doing here? I go, I work here. In fact, I'm the guy you're coming to see. And he goes, you're kidding. I thought you worked at Apple. I mean, we'd been playing music at that point for three years. <laughs> he had no idea I was in the investment business. Because from my point right. of view, there's no point in telling anybody, right? Yeah. And so the way to think about it was, you know, it's like one of these things that it's hard for people to understand is that somebody could tell you the best thing they knew, but it didn't matter because nobody actually knew what was going on. The numbers didn't mean anything. I mean, it was really about all you had to do was figure out a couple things. And the first thing I figured out is I'm just going to do the personal computer industry. And that caused me to, and, and by the way, I'm going to travel with it all the time. So I was literally doing 100 days a year in California and 150 days on the road when the typical Wall Street analyst was doing five days on the road. 
So that was a big change. And then, but this other thing was by focusing on one industry, I had only one demand curve. So every other company, every other investment firm was organized semiconductors, you know, PCs, software, you know, graphics cards, monitors. They would, they were horizontally organized and I was organized vertically, one demand curve. And I just focused on that one thing. So I wasn't interested in like how many disk drives are being produced. I didn't care. I just wanted to know who was going to make the disk drive that was going to be in a compact computer because I thought compact had the products. I focused on products instead of focusing on spreadsheets because I thought spreadsheets were boring. And you had the best connections in the business. Well, I don't know that I had the best connections, but what I had was connections that, that worked for the style of investing I was doing. I mean, I was in this thing where you could have told me what the Microsoft earnings were going to be for the next six quarters. I wouldn't have even bothered to write them down because that had nothing to do with the way I was investing. I was buying things and holding them for years at a time on the basis that yeah. if the I had a very simple option, which is I was going to focus on products when everyone else was focused on earnings models. And my notion was simple. If the product was hot, the estimate was always going to be too low. And if the product was not hot, the estimate would always be too high. So all I really need to figure out was which products were going to be hot. So I decided to become a judge of products. Anyway, I cannot tell you how well that worked. It was unbelievable. And then, all of a sudden, starting in 86 or 87, nationwide pagers begin. And nationwide pagers are the first really mobile device, right? And I'm commuting, like, all the time. So, of course, I get one on the first day. Because otherwise, my wife's got to wait by the phone every night. This way, she can let me know when she's available. So I get a nationwide page, and I suddenly realize, wait a minute, I can turn my lifestyle into an investment strategy. I'm going to focus on mobile stuff. And the other thing I did was I really liked video games, so I decided, okay, I'm going to become an expert on video games. And I went, you know, this electronic arts company, they make really cool products. And I spent two and a half years trying to become an investor there. And they kept telling me, now nah, we don't need you, we don't need you. And then they almost went broke. They went into Europe and... They didn't know what they were doing, and they made the wrong product, and it didn't sell at all. And they basically converted all the cash in the balance sheet into finished goods inventory for games nobody wanted. And I, you know, I persuaded my firm to let me put a venture investment in electronic arts. And that money allowed them to recapitalize, and a year, year and a half later, they went public, and you know, a lot of goodness happened. And at the time, you know, I was looking at Oracle and this company, Sybase, comes along. And I think to myself, that's a really good idea. They're doing real-time databases. So they're going to do ATM machines and things like that. And so I make an investment there. And, you know, there are a bunch of things like that. Well, it turns out that the venture capital firm that I kept doing these deals with was a firm called Kleiner, Perkins, Caulfield, and Byers, which was actually a firm going through a rough patch. Things, you know, they'd had this great run with Compaq and Lotus and Sun Microsystems. And then things went dry for them for a while. And, you know, I'm doing these investments with them, but I'm cherry picking effectively their best stuff. And I'm getting to know this guy, John Doerr. And John's the up and coming guy at that firm. Anyway, I'm thinking to myself, I like this John Doerr guy. He's really good. If I were ever going to start a firm on my own, I want to work with him. And if I do it, what I really want to do is combine these two things. I want to take my investment strategy and build a fund optimized to it. So it'll do both late stage venture and public. Because the key insight I had was 
In the tech world, companies never get beaten by bigger companies. They always got beat startups. And I can't tell you how valuable that insight was at that time. So I never worried about what IBM or digital equipment were going to do. I always worried about what was going on venture. So I spent all my time looking at venture things, even though I, I had barely any way to invest in them. But I wanted to know what was coming. And I caught two or three really good ones. I'm thinking to myself, I want to do this. Fall of 1990. Well, actually, first the summer of 1990. The most important thing to also do if you're an investor is be really self-aware. And you got to know what your failure modes are. My big failure mode occurred in the summer of 1990. So my strategy post the crash in 87, I realized it doesn't matter what you own going into a bear market. What matters is what you own coming out of it. And I was too slow to figure that out in 87. So, but what I also realized was that people had too much diversification in tech. There were a relatively small number of winners and you wanted to load up on them. So spring of 1990, I'm, I'm really rolling. I had the number one fund in 1989, and you know I'm just the thing's a rocket. At that point, I think I have 12 percent of the fund in Oracle, and I've got like another seven or eight in chips and technologies, and uh, another six or seven in Cirrus Logic. I, I, I mean, the top 10 holdings were like 60 percent of the fund. Well, no, it can't be that much. They must have been 40 percent of the fund, and the top 20 were like 70 percent of the fund. And uh, so really concentrated. And I'm conference at the Hotel Del Coronado in near San Diego, California, which old fancy, you know, fancy old hotel or some conference there. And Oracle's having its conference call. And they had grown 100% year on year every quarter since they went public in 86. And so now we're in the sum, we're doing the June quarter of uh, a report of 1990. And they get on, and instead of saying in the first 10 seconds, well, we had another 100% quarter, they start hemming and hawing. And all of a sudden, I go into a state of shock, and I realize, oh, my God, they didn't go percent. In fact, they didn't go anywhere near 100%. And I want to say the stock was down 30% the next day, and I had 12% of the fund in it. You can do the math, right? I mean... I was down three points in one day on one stock. I owned two other stocks, Chips and Technologies and Cirrus Logic, that also got completely fried that summer. And the reason they got fried was right after the Oracle earnings report comes out, um, Iraq is Kuwait, and the market panics. And so there's a mini bear market. You know, it's like a mini crash. And tech stocks, which had been high-flying, just got crushed. And I think my fund was down 40% in two months. And maybe Holy it's only cow. 30%, but it was yeah. breathtaking. But I learned the lesson. It doesn't matter what you own going in. What matters is what you own coming out. And so I levered the thing up like crazy. And when the market turned in September, my fund had fuel in it. And it just exploded on the upside. I mean, I was up, I want to guess it was like 10% a month for like six months in a row with a couple of like 15 and 20% months. And and the result of which was things are starting to feel good. And I'm at Comdex, which is the big computer industry trade show in Vegas in like early November of 1990. So, you know, I'm maybe 
three months into this rapid rise, and I've recovered almost the entire decline. And I'm about to have one of the great quarters, certainly the best quarters I ever had, and it turned out one of the best quarters anybody was having in the country in that fourth quarter. And again, I have in the back of my head, I want to go to work with Kleiner Perkins, right? And John Doerr, the very guy I want to work with, comes up to me at this trade show and goes, hey, Roger, one of our investors thinks we ought to start a fund that does both late-stage private and public investing in tech, and they think you ought to run it. What do you think? In one of the rare times in my life when I said the right thing the right way, I go, when do we start? What I didn't realize (laughs) is John had literally not given it a moment's thought. I had a business plan roughly half written, and I sent him a full version of the business plan like within three days. I don't hear anything back from him right away. And so I start bugging him. Well, the March quarter of that year, I had one of the greatest quarters that a fund had in that decade. It would just, you know, it was, I forget what it was, but it was so huge. It was wildly better than any other fund, not just tech, but anything. And I got a huge amount of press and all of a sudden he got really interested. So he says, come to California. Well, it turns out, kind of like the Borland guy, there had been an industry conference that had uh, had a charity auction. And one of the things given away was a ski house at Lake Tahoe combined with a ski instructor. And it turned out the ski instructor was an industry notable. And it turned out that industry notable was me. And it turned out John Doerr's wife had bought that thing. So we, it was like, I'm getting all this press. And we have this time when I'm going to be ski instructing them, like coming right up. And I think we have it set up for like Valentine's Day weekend or something. So I come out to California and, uh, you know, we, uh, I'll, I'll make the story short. It was a wild weekend. They had like eight feet of snow over the weekend. Couldn't ski at all. But we plot out this idea. And there were ebbs and flows, but the net result was we created a thing called Integral Capital Partners, which was the first crossover fund. And it was a Kleiner Perkins startup incubated by John Doerr. But unlike all the others, it was designed to remain in the building, which it did for a decade. And we got launched in the fourth quarter of 91. We raised $104 million, which doesn't seem like much today, but at the time was the largest first-time fund ever raised. And uh, we raised it entirely from essentially CEOs of tech companies and friends and family of CEOs and of the tech industry. So it would be people like you know people at Morgan Stanley and uh, places like that. And no. the timing—I mean, think to yourself—you're starting a tech fund at the you know. At the very beginning of or very end of '91, uh, I mean, Windows 3.0 had just shipped. Enterprise software was just beginning. Data networking was just beginning. PCs weren't dead yet. I mean, it was a gale force tailwind. The fund shot up like a rocket, and you know, like we were there about an hour when we made an investment in uh, in Intuit, which wound up being a monster IPO, and we do a whole bunch of other things that worked out great. And what was really funny was that Kleiner's business was, you know, there was a big industry transition, and they, were, they weren't correctly positioned for it. So they weren't actually doing that well while we were doing great. And that was really helpful because 
in the process, they they weren't that busy, so they spent a lot of time observing us and learning from us, which was weird. It's exactly backwards. We actually learned a ton from them because, like, we were at this meeting, and this will help explain it. They're like talking about what was going to be called the internet, the uh, information superhighway, which subsequently became known as the internet. And the information superhighway they thought was going to be dominated by telephone and cable. And so they were talking about all the investment opportunities at this offsite. And the one they didn't talk about was the billing system. And I'm going, how come you're not going to do the billing system? And John Dore turns to me and says, oh, Oracle will eventually win that. And I'm going, that's amazing. Oracle was selling for like a dollar a share, right? Because they'd blown up in 1990, and this is only a year later, right? And the stock was literally on the verge of bankruptcy. And here he's telling me that these guys are going to win the billing system for the information superhighway. Not because he knew, but because he was worried enough. He thought they were well enough positioned. They weren't going to compete. So I didn't have to worry about something coming up from below to attack Oracle. So I go back to my huge position in Oracle again. Right? And uh, I do the same thing with Dell. He puts himself on the verge of going out of business, and I buy a huge position. And, you know, Cisco comes public, and I buy a big position there. And I really didn't need to do anything else. Those three positions were enough. Then we made some venture investments that worked out. Anyway, long story well, short. Huh? Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just saying, long story short, this goes on all the way. Then the internet happens, right? So in 94, I'm sitting around the office, and Jim Clark, who was the founder of Silicon Graphics, comes in with this really tall but really young guy who turned out to be Mark Andreessen. And they were coming in to pitch Klein and Perkins on the thing that became Netscape. And so I go into the meeting. I knew Jim Clark because I'd been a, at T. Rowe Price. We'd been an investor in Silicon Graphics. So I knew I knew SGI really, really well. And uh, so it, it's this wild thing, right? And then in comes Jeff Bezos with what became Amazon, right? <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, I'm sitting there and I'm going, huh, the whole world's changing. I better get ready. And my partner's looking at me going, dude, I think we're done with PCs. He said, go out and figure something else out. Because 94 was a really rough year, right? The PC industry was really running out of gas. And Microsoft and Intel essentially were vacuuming up the profits the way Facebook and Google are vacuuming up now. And everything else was getting fried. So he says, we need to find something new. So I decided, okay, we're just going to do data networking, enterprise software, and whatever this internet thing became. And uh, three years later, you know, the internet is completely off fuego, and Martha Stewart comes in the office. And she's got her home decorating company. And John Doerr decides he's going to make an investment and turn it into an internet stock. And I look at my partner and go, we're doomed. I mean, if you can make Martha Stewart into an internet stock, Right? right? This has got to be totally insanity. This is going to crash and burn, and we're a long only late stage venture in public fund. We're going to be killed. We got to have a plan B. So I go to Morgan Stanley and I go, guys, I think we're doomed. And Morgan's going, really? And it matters because they're the biggest investment banker in the sector. And they go, you think there's a problem? We're going, well, Martha Stewart's going to be an internet stock, right? I mean, if, I mean, because clearly wasn't, right? She was doing, you know, home decorating. Sure. And uh, so 
I said, we got it. And so they decide they give me a million bucks and they go figure out the next big thing. So I spend a year figuring out the next big thing, which turns out to be Silver Lake Partners, the first private equity kind of LBO fund in tech. And I don't have any idea how to do any of that. I just I know how to create a fund, but I don't, and I know how to raise it because I got all these investors, but I don't really know how to run. So I get three partners who come out of the world of private equity banking, and uh, so we launched that fund in early '99, so a year before the top, and we get a billion dollars out of elevation because I'm telling to the elevation investors, I'm going, guys, this is going to end really badly. We need to have a different kind of fund, and I'm going to start it, and you should move all your money over there. So I get a billion from the investment. Uh, the remember, Integral when it was formed was 104. I the Integral investors put a billion, commit a billion just to Silver like by themselves, and then we go out and raise another 1.6 billion from other people, and it takes like six weeks, the same amount of time it took to do Integral. I mean, it was a blink of an eye. I mean, it took a year to prepare and or two years to prepare, but then practically no time to raise. So we get all this money. And all the integral investors take their money out. We convert what's left into cash, which we distribute in March of 2000, 10 days after the market peaked. But it was already in cash. And so we wound up, because thanks to Martha Stewart, who I think to, getting (laughs) most of people's money out in time. So then I start working on, on, uh, on Silver Lake. I mean, Integral's still going. It's still got a fund, and the other guys still, they don't want to work on Silver Lake, but I do, so I work on Silver Lake, and I make an investment, and my good friend Steve uh, Luzo and I organized a thing to do a LBO of Seagate, the world's biggest disc drive company. And Steve was a really good friend, and I'd been a big investor in the company in the past, and it was a situation where if we took a private instead of cutting costs, we were going to throw wildly more money in R&D than you could throw in if you were a public company. And my partners go for that. And then we buy a company called Daytech. So this is summer of 2000. Markets in free fall. Daytech is an online brokerage firm. And I decided to go back and look what happened in the last bear market to discount brokers. You know, Charles Schwab and all those guys. And I discovered that even though everybody gets killed in a bear market, Schwab gained share and came out of it stronger and won. And so I persuaded everybody else to, to do this investment in Daytech. And they owned a thing called Island, which was this electronic trading marketplace for penny stocks. And it was the highest volume trading system in the world. And it worked on a really novel concept, which is that the person demanding liquidity paid the commission, and the person providing liquidity got paid a commission. And I thought that was a really cool idea. So we did that. And then we also put money into Gartner Group uh, because there was an investment at Integral that Gartner wanted to own. But they need to recapitalize, and so Silver Lake did the recap using the transaction through Interval. So I wound up doing three investments. And I'm meanwhile, I'm helping the Grateful Dead take their online business, which after Jerry Garcia had become unbelievable, after Jerry died, became the most successful uh, direct-to-fan commerce business in music. And they asked me, can you help us, like, work on our business so we don't have to fire everybody now that Jerry's dead. And so I'm working on that, and it's doing really well. And one of the people who is interested in this is like Dave Matthews, and Fish is really interested, and Pearl Jam's really interested. And then U2 gets really interested. Bono reaches out. 
and he finds me and through a woman named Cheryl Sandberg. Cheryl is working for the, at, she was the chief of staff to the Secretary of the Treasury, and her brother-in-law, her sister's husband, works for me at Silverlake. And so I meet Bono, and I'm going over to Ireland to work with Bono on, the, on this thing, and I'm coming back, and as I get off the plane, I have a stroke. And it's like I'm in a car being driven by somebody else home at four in the morning and I have a stroke. And I wake up in the morning like three hours later and I have this meeting which I'm hosting at Palm because I try to buy Palm at, at Silverlink. And uh, except the whole world's tilted 30 degrees off axis and I can't stand up straight. In fact, I can barely move. And the whole world looks weird. And when I open my mouth and say something, different words come out than what I hear in my head. And the meeting's not going well, and apparently I was, like, green. I mean, literally green. But for some reason, nobody thinks to take me to the hospital. In fact, when the meetings, I spend the whole meeting in the bathroom. I just say, guys, I don't feel good. I'm going to go in the bathroom because the words that come out of my mouth are not the right words. I go to the bathroom. And I'm hanging out there. When the meeting ends, one of the guys drives me to my next meeting, which means I have to go to the airport and go to Aspen, Colorado. If you learn anything about strokes, what you never want to do is go to high altitude. You for sure don't want to be in an airplane. So right. I get off the airplane, yeah. I have a second stroke. Oh, shoot. And here I'm at the Kleiner Perkins CEO Summit in Aspen, Colorado in June of 2001. And uh, there are doctors everywhere. It never occurs to anybody that maybe I ought to go to the hospital. But I go into my room, I take out my guitar, and I play guitar for four hours. And I sing and guitar at the same time. And they've told me that I... Uh, the rewiring of my brain, the reason why I don't have any permanent impairment is that that music had to have a, be a factor. So for the second time in my life, music was profoundly important in you know, saving me. You made all those brain connections and things that are required when you're playing music and singing and well, guitar yeah. and all that. And, yeah. Anyway, okay. so long story short, um, I, ta- I have open heart surgery. I had a birth defect in my heart, which is the reason I had the strokes. And the birth defect was a hole. And they needed to close it up, and the best way to do it was open-heart surgery. And I had a complication in the open heart, and it took me a year to recover. Meanwhile, Steve Jobs gives me a chance to buy 18% of Apple. They've just introduced the iPod. The stock's trading for cash value, which was 12 bucks a share. You know, that's like a gazillion splits ago. And uh, I call Steve up and say, Steve, we ought to do a recap. In fact, we ought to buy your whole company because your options are at 40. You, this, I think this iPod thing is pretty cool. I don't know how big it is, but I think it says, you know, you guys are way smarter than 12 bucks a share. I want to be on your team. I think this is awesome. We spend about three months figuring out, and he goes, look, I don't want to do an LBL. that's too complicated, but if you want to buy 18% of the company in the public market, you can go on the board, and uh, my team's really excited about this. So I bring this to Silver Lake, and they go, no. I go, what do you mean, no? <laughs> I mean, it's an Apple computer. We can buy. Right. It's at cash value. What's the downside? And they go, no. And I don't understand it. Meanwhile, I get this phone call from Bono. And it was one of these great moments. I'm literally walking between buildings, and my phone rings. And he goes, Roger, it's Bono. Now, I haven't heard from him at that point since before the stroke. right? So it's been like a couple of years. And, uh, or more than a year. And they go, you know, it's one of those moments where if, if I'd had my brain about me, I would have gone, Bono who, right? That would have been the perfect comeback, but I didn't think that quick. 
And he says, I want to buy Universal <laughs> Music Group and I want to do it with you. So I bring that deal in. And the Silver Lake guys go, you know, that's a really good idea. We like Bono a lot, but we don't want to be working on it. I'm going, what do you mean you don't want me working on it? They go, well, you know, we're tired of you. I go, what do you mean? I said, well, the way the terms of the deal work, there's four of us and majority rules. And uh, right now the three of us have decided we would like to have three partners and we're tired of you. So we'd like you to leave. He said, you can stay, but if you stay, you don't get to do anything, including the deal with Bono. So I go, that doesn't seem right. I quit. And it happened I was in New York that day, and Bono was in New York. So I called him up and say, so, dude, I just quit. You know, these guys told me they didn't want me anymore. Bono goes, well, screw them. We'll start our own firm. And uh, so literally that day we started Elevation. So the same day I quit Silver Lake. And so Elevation, we decided was going to do media and and uh, intersection of media and technology. And we're not quite sure what that means. So we go out and recruit Fred Anderson, who'd been the CFO at Apple, and John Riccatello, who had been the president of Electronic Arts. You know, people from my recent past. And, uh, and the guy who had Sheryl Sandberg's brother-in-law, who had been at Silver Lake. And so we launched this fund. And like, I don't know, a couple years later, I get this phone call, and the guy goes, I'm the chief privacy officer of Facebook. My boss has got a problem. He needs somebody to talk to. I go, well, I think Facebook's really cool. I'm really negative on, uh, you know, their competitors. And I think what they're doing is really cool. Keep in mind, the thing's brand new, right? I mean, it's just still college students. I'm not even sure they had newsfeed yet. And uh, so he comes into my office and I go, dude, I don't know you from a hole in the ground. You don't know me from a hole in the ground. So I need to say something so you understand where I'm coming from. He goes, okay, shoot. I go, if it hasn't already happened, either Microsoft or Yahoo is going to come and offer a billion dollars to buy your company. Your board of directors, your venture capitalists, your parents, your executive team, and all your employees are going to tell you to take the, take the deal. You'll be worth $650 million bucks. Your venture capitalist will tell you that he's going to back your next company. And, you know, you'll be a rich man and totally independent. And I said, you know, you don't know me. I don't know you. But I think this company is really a much bigger idea than everybody else thinks. I think... That with kids is nonsense. The real value in this thing is going to be when adults use it, parents and grandparents, because you're all about, you know, the relationships with people that are important, but not ones you can maintain by personal contact every day. And parents and grandparents are going to love this, particularly when you can share photographs and things like that. So I said, I think you're going to be bigger than Google will be, than Google is right now. And I think you'll get there pretty quick. And I go, I just tell all these guys, you know, jump the lake. <laughs> After that ensues the longest, most painful of my entire life. It went on forever. It, I mean, it seemed like an hour, but it was probably only five minutes. And meanwhile, Mark is going through all of these thinker poses, you know, like, you know, hand on forehead, hand on chin, both hands on cheeks. And he's clearly trying to decide, does he trust me or not? And I'm trying to decide, am I going to scream or grab them, or what? Because, I mean, it's painful to sit there when somebody's not saying anything. Anyway, essentially, what happens is there's this, like in a cartoon, this light bulb goes off. And he looks at me, he's not even going to believe this. In my bag here, I have a purchase offer for the company from one of those two companies you mentioned, at for a billion dollars, and every single thing you said has happened already. Every single thing. He said, how did you know? I said, 
dude, I didn't know. I've just been around a long time and I know these people. That's how they think. And he go, and so I said, do you want to sell the company? He goes, no. I go, well, let's figure out how to stop it. Well, it turned out it was really easy. It took us five minutes to figure it out. So he goes back and he blows off the deal. That, and it turned out it was Yahoo. It was the first time Yahoo tried to buy the company. And uh, so I suddenly am like a mentor to this 22-year-old who's got this really cool startup. So I st- spend a lot of time with him, advise him on things. And he says, hey, I really like you. I'm going to give you a choice. We've got a guy who's got to sell some stock. You can either buy his stock or you can go on the board. I'm, I don't like the advice my board members have been giving me you know, because they wanted to sell the company. And so I want to separate stock ownership from board membership. I'll give you take your pick. I go, look, I'm a professional investor. I have to take investing. So I get a chance to invest in 2007. And, I mean, you can imagine. That worked out pretty well. And uh, so for about three years, I mentor Mark. And the, and keep in mind, they don't have any revenue, right, until the last year. And they get some revenue, and they're screwing it up totally. They do this thing with Microsoft, and it's a complete mess. And he's going, you know, I just don't understand about business. i got to get somebody to help me do this. And I go, well, I know exactly the right person. He goes, wow, that would be great. So anyway, I used him to a woman named Cheryl Sandberg. Now, Cheryl, again, she'd been at the Treasury Department. And when she came out of Treasury Department, she moved into my office for a while, right? Because Bono, you know, she got to know me through the Bono. She introduced Bono, but then she came to know me. And so she was hanging out. She thought she'd go in the investment business. We're going, are you crazy? I mean, my partner, bless his heart, John Powell, goes, are you nuts? You could change the world. You need to work at a big company. So she goes to work at Google and creates AdWords, which is, for all intents and purposes, the only proxy for what Facebook had to do. So I go, I think we should get Sheryl Sandberg. And he's going, cool. Now, Mark's, at that time particularly, it was very different because he comes from a family where his mom was kind of in charge, at least as far as I can tell, and he has nothing but sisters. So he was really comfortable working with women. And I go to Sheryl and I go, hey, I think you ought to go to, and Sheryl's got this job offer from the Washington Post. I go, are you nuts? I mean, they're, they're doomed. There's no way that's going to work out. You do not want to do that. And she said, what should I do? I said, you should go to work at Facebook. And you should do to Facebook what you did at, at uh, Google, except this time you're going to get a much better job. She goes, no way. I met that kid one time, and he's just a kid. There's no way I'm working for a kid. And Cheryl, you're not listening to me. He's better than that, and he's a way better fit for you than you realize. So anyway, I broker her going there. And she joins the firm, I want to say, it was early 2010. And my role then basically starts to fade out because more or less overnight she creates a real business model, like start getting ready to go public, and the board takes finally gets its act together and does the mentoring job it's supposed to do. So I kind of disappear from the scene. And you know, elevation does palm. You know, the same thing that I had to stroke doing. We wind up doing the thing, make the the palm pre, which is essentially the phone that iPhone ten is. I mean, it wasn't. The engineering wasn't as good, so it didn't work nearly as well. But it was all the same functions and the same architectural idea. Um, so we did some really cool things. We got our money out of that. Facebook did really well. Yelp did really well. We had a video game company. We wind up selling to Electronic Arts because, you know, so it's those relationships. You know, when you pick the right ones at the beginning, they last your whole career. And and then what happened was I kind of went, you know. I'm looking around, and fa- elevation's coming to an end. And I re- Silicon Valley is different than it used to be. You know, now everybody's 
like a libertarian, right? Which is to say that they basically believe that we each are only responsible for ourselves and there's no like common interest, which means it's okay to disrupt anything. You're not responsible for the downstream stuff. And I'm going, that's, that doesn't strike me as right. There's something really wrong with that. And it really bothered me. And so I decided I'm not going to do another fund after elevation, that the culture's changed so much. The hippie value system of Steve Jobs has been replaced by the libertarian value system Teal, which led to the last hilarious thing that happened, which was I get this phone call from the people doing the HBO Silicon Valley show. And they say, we'd like to take you to dinner. I go to dinner with Mike Judge and his, his team. I ask Mike Judge, I go, so Mike, you know, what's the gestalt of the show? And he goes, well, I kind of believe that it's a battle between the hippie value system of Steve Jobs and the libertarian value system of Peter Thiel. That's where I got that metaphor. <laughs> and okay. this company is the, are the hippies and everybody else are libertarians and the libertarians are always weak. I'm going, I looked around the table with the other people that I'm going, and I'm the last hippie standing and everybody at the table is nodding at me. Like, yeah, that's why you're here. That's when I realized, you know what? I need to get, I need to stop managing a fund because my time is yeah. over, right? The thing that made me successful was living in this value system where knowing the songs was enough, right? You know, growing up with people and liking the same music, doing the same drugs, all of that was, that worked, um, you know, until 2010. And since then, it's different. Anyway, so that's the story of how I got here. Well, let, let's talk about um, Facebook and, you know, your your recent um, comments, you know, about how the company's evolved and your worries. Um, you know, I, I, there's the surveillance issue, which is, you know, these companies have now built profiles and people, you know, surveillance that's unprecedented kind of in human history. But most people think, well, I don't have anything to hide. So so, you know, what what are your thoughts there? So the let's put Facebook and uh, Google and YouTube in historical context. Yeah. Their business models are based on advertising. And when advertising first emerged as a business model, it was with the development of tabloid newspapers in the 1830s. And almost immediately, you know, this notion that you were not going to charge a high subscription charge or a high purchase price, you were basically going to make the money on the ads, led to an insight, which has been codified into the term, into the phrase, if it bleeds, leads, right? The notion was that tabloid newspapers, by definition, were not highbrow. They were lowbrow. They were aiming for the, for the common denominator. And they would do that with, you know, murders and, and car wrecks or whatever the most sensational, bloody thing, you know, Jack the Ripper, whatever it was, right? And mm -hmm. if it bleeds, it leads, has been the advertising business model for 180 years, right? And in that sense, Facebook, Google, YouTube are no different than the early tabloid newspapers. But the context in which they operate is profoundly different. Until 10 years ago, if it bleeds, it leads, could only do limited harm because the delivery platforms for media were inherently limited. 
print was limited because uh, you had to totally focus on it. So like newspapers and books and magazines and things uh, required total folk, and there was only so long people could read before running out of energy, typically an hour or two. When radio came along, again, radios were initially very bulky, so people wouldn't listen for more than a couple hours, three hours at a time. Television comes along, same thing. Movie theaters, you had to go somewhere. So essentially, media competed based on distribution platform, and they all had to compete on the quality of their content because there were only a few hours a day that people could commit to their their platform. When Facebook and, and Google started up, the internet didn't have good content. And so what they did was they used the real-time nature of the internet to, to survey so to surveil their users and gather data in order to try to make things more personal. Because they didn't have better content, they had to have cheaper ad prices and levels of personalization. The world changed with the introduction of the iPhone. Smartphones changed everything. As finally you have smartphones with LTE changed everything because finally you had one delivery platform for every form of content and it was available 18 hours a day. In that world, the ball game was different. And uh, the other factor with Facebook and Google that matters just as much as the delivery platform is that that they they noticed something about the internet. When the internet was created in the 60s, it was designed to by the military to protect us from a nuclear attack. And the notion was we need we can't have all our centralized on mainframes because they just blow up the one site and then you lose everything. We need a distributed computing environment. So the internet was created to do that. And when they brought it over for commercial use, it had the benefit that it was totally democratic. Every site was equal. Nobody had an advantage. The problem was the government had developed the infrastructure, so there was nobody whose job it was to make the tools easy to use. And the open source community, which was the way the tools were created, were all super techies. They didn't care if stuff was easy to use. So the result was that businesses users found the Internet to be very frustrating. And Facebook and Google took advantage of that. And they essentially made everything you did on the Internet a lot easier. So think about Google, what they did with Gmail, what they've done with the various Google apps, what they've done with Maps, all these other things. They took things that were out there and just made them a lot more easy to use, a lot more accessible. Facebook did the same thing with sharing photos and messages and all that stuff. And... In the process, what they were able to do was by offering convenience and making it notionally free, they were able to essentially centralize the Internet with themselves in the middle. And they were able, as a consequence, to make it convenient for users. They accumulate all the users and force the content guys to pay this huge tax to them in order to reach users. So that was what was going on when the smartphone kicks in. Smartphone with LTE just puts that on, you know, puts rockets on it. And so suddenly these guys are no longer competing on the basis of content. They're competing on the basis of attention, right? In a world of scarce, great content, everybody can play. But in a world of scarce attention, the people who have personal data have a prohibitive advantage. 
And that's what Google and Facebook had. And so what they realized was they were playing for the largest possible share of the 18 hours people would spend on a smartphone. Or not that they would, but the, the amount that they could spend on it. And so they realized, well, what we really want to do is to addict people. So they took all the techniques from the gambling industry and all these other things people learned about, you know, from propaganda about how you persuade people, how you addict them. And so they used the surveillance to gather data, not to share it, you know, to embarrass you, but in fact, to manipulate what you think. And what happened was back in early 2016, I started to notice around the election campaign a series of things going on that were not normal. You couldn't explain them on the basis of, you know, this was a popular thing people were sharing. And Brexit really taught me a lot because during Brexit, the lead campaign, the guys who were saying we're going to leave the European Union, had a Essentially, all the polls said they were going to get creamed, and yet they won. And their message was totally emotional. It basically said, those evil foreigners are going to take your jobs and ruin your culture. And if we get rid of the foreigners and we leave the European Union, we're going to save so much money that we're going to be able to make the health system a lot better than it is now. The other guys are going, stay the course, a totally you know sensible, not even remotely emotional pitch. And the insight that I had was that Facebook, the way that it had made the addiction thing work, which I didn't understand at that time, but the way it had made people share stuff was that it had focused on emotion and that the emotions that worked best were fear and anger and that the Leave campaign organized, had leveraged that. And if you think about it, that's what Trump did too. Totally angry thing. And, you know, so all this fake news stuff, if you look at it, the common thing about fake news is that it all appeals to fear and anger. And so I, I'm noticing this as the campaign's going on. And trust me, I didn't understand what it meant. You know, I, I wasn't nearly that smart. But I saw all this stuff that was not organic, was not natural. And it really worried me to the point. And by the way, not of all, all of it was election related. I mean, there was a firm that scraped Facebook's data and sold it to police departments. And the data they were scraping was people were showing interest in Black Lives Matter. So clear civil rights violation. Then some banks got busted for using Facebook's advertising tools to exclude people from home loans on the basis of either race or religion. Another thing, blatantly. So I, I'm sitting there thinking, I think Clinton's going to win, so I don't want to focus on the investment stuff. I go to Mark and Cheryl in October of 2016 and go, guys, I think we got a problem here. And here's this list of six things going on, none of which were investment related. But I think all these things are due to the way the algorithms were. I think these are structural. And I think this suggests that the bad guys are exploiting the platform and harming society. Well, they politely told me that they thought I was full of it. Um, then the election happens, and I go, nothing here. I go, wait a minute, guys. You, you, you played a huge role in this election thing, and I don't know exactly what, but a huge role here and not good. You can't dodge responsibility. And they're going, no, 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 we're a platform. We're not, you know, we're libertarians. We're not responsible for what third parties do. And I'm going, you know, you got at that time 1.8 billion users. They may have a different point of view. You are messing with your brand here. You are risking becoming Darth Vader. And I spent four months privately trying to convince them that this was a huge issue. And they were having none. 
finally, I gave up. And then in April, I meet a young man named Tristan Harris, who'd been the design ethicist at Google. And I'd known Tristan when he came out of Stanford. I actually helped him get his first startup rolling, but I hadn't seen him you know, in seven or eight years. And Tristan had just been on 60 Minutes talking about this concept of brain hacking. And he's talking about the psychology of addiction and how it works on these social networks. And he'd been one of the guys at Google doing it. And it really scared him and bothered him. He'd started this group to try to make people aware of the problem. But other than getting on 60 Minutes, he was having trouble with traction. So I go, I call him up afterwards. I go, Tristan, do you need a wingman? He goes, wow, yeah, I love a wingman. And so I... Uh, I, starting in April, full-time ever since, have been just trying to help start a national conversation about what is the appropriate role of these giant internet platform monopolies in our society? Because clearly what they're doing is, um, well, I mean, it's not against the law as currently interpreted, although if if you use any legal interpretation that's more than 10 years old, they're doing a lot of things that would have allowed, Right. And, you know, 20 years ago, they never would have been allowed to have the levels of monopoly power they have now. And for sure, they wouldn't be able to assert that they owned all the consumer's data. And there's a lot of things that are really wrong. And I feel really bad because this thing that I did that for a long time was my, you know, the thing I was most proud of is now doing great harm. And I'm still trying to help them figure it out. And for whatever reason, it's been really hard. And, uh, and it's really, really disappointing because these are not bad people. I view this as the unintended consequences of a well-intended strategy. But the problem is every single thing that Facebook has done in response to the public pressure or congressional pressure has been literally the, the least they could do and always completely inadequate. And that just makes me really sad. And, you know, I, I just I'm going, guys. You're playing with fire, and if they decide you're Darth Vader, people are going to leave this thing in droves, and you're going to have nothing. Whereas the cool thing to do is to say, wait a minute, we won. They're all billionaires. They did their wildest dreams. Now they can do something patriotic for the country. And so what if it takes half their profit margin for you know a few years to get all that figured out? They're going to be heroes, and everybody's going to love them. You know? But instead, they're sitting there pretending like they're the NRA and they got to fight this thing tooth and nail and they can't admit anything. And I'm like, guys, this is, it's not that way. So with them responding you know, that way to this stuff, do you think the greater risk is people leaving the platform or regula- increased regulation? I mean, we have had historically no appetite for it. So I, I think that I wouldn't ask the question that way, Jesse, because – you know, risk is a weird word to use here. Under current circumstances, what I would tell you is Facebook's still one of the best stocks you can own today. You know, because there has been zero threat of regulation, right? We we used to believe that monopolies were something associated with royalty, that they were bad for our economy and bad for culture. They're clearly bad for the economy. You know, the evidence of that has been conclusive for 300 years. And we used to think they were socially bad. But since 1981, we've had a different philosophy, and we still have that philosophy operational today. But what's interesting in the last three months is Congress has gone from saying there's no way we're going to regulate any of this to going, oh, my God, we're going to have to have some form of regulation because these people are out of control. 
So if you view if you view regulation as a risk, then that's something you got to pay attention to. I think regulation is the only way to save these people from themselves. So I actually think as a shareholder, you should want regulation because the businesses are going to be fundamentally sound even if they're regulated. Whereas if they're left to go on their current path, eventually you're going to have to have, you know, like the equivalent of an armed insurrection of the users. And then you're going to have total system failure. Okay. You know, it may take a while, but eventually people are going to figure out basically these people own everything that is known about you and they will they will rent it out to anybody with no questions asked and they'll let those people do whatever you want and in the era where equifax has allowed itself to be so that every adult in america is completely has all their financial information out there on the internet to anybody who wants to buy it that's really dangerous i mean we have to stop pretending that tech companies you know are pure as the driven snow i mean I'm a huge believer that technology is a good thing, but um, but not now, you know? Yeah, it seems like both of those things are changing, not just Washington waking up to regulation, but the users are waking up to, wait, it's not just about I have nothing to hide. It's about how are they potentially manipulating me? But, uh, you know, people still think. Well, I'm not. I'm. I'm no, every, everybody brain. says, "Hey, the guy on the left of me is being manipulated. The guy on the right of me is not is being manipulated." But I'm not being manipulated. The reality is, at least 25 percent of the U.S. population today, at least 25 percent, believes things that are demonstrably not true because of the filter bubbles on Facebook and Google. At least a quarter of the population, and it may be as much as 50 percent of the population. Of the whole country. I mean, 75% of the country uses Facebook. Two-thirds of them are on there every day. And the vast majority of those people believe things that aren't true because they live in this filter bubble where it looks like everybody agrees with them. Because nobody ever shows them anything that doesn't confirm what they believe, which makes their views more rigid and more extreme. That doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean you're weak. It means these people are messing with your brain and they have this technology, which, I mean, think about this. When in the 50s, there was this movement to make eating convenient, right? So we, you know, instead of people preparing meals, we got frozen food and all these prepared meals. What they didn't tell us was they're filling them all full of sugar and fat. So now we have an issue of morbid obesity is killing the whole country because nobody stopped to think then or ask the question of, can this stuff harm you? And now we're doing the same darn thing relative to the Internet. Only now it's two brains. And we're losing agency. Well, and it's, you, it, it, my, my only point here is it's probably too late for most of us, and we got to focus on kids because the addiction problem, it, it, it's, it, the point here is people don't mind being addicted, right? But it's not good for how society works, and it's not good for how government works. I mean, half the country believes that government is the enemy. I mean, that's nuts. Right? I mean, there's a huge percent of the population who believes that this tax cut, you know, is a good thing. It's a good thing for 1% of the country. It's a bad thing for 99% of the country. I happen to be in the 1%. And I'm saying I'm against it because anything that harms 99% of the country is a bad thing. 
And Facebook's played a huge role in allowing that kind of fiction to become firmly planted in people's minds. And they can't be allowed to do that. And my point is they don't need that to be successful. They don't need that to be a good stock. And God knows the country doesn't depend on Facebook and Google for growth. In fact, they're because they're monopolists, they're choking off innovation in Silicon Valley horrifically. I mean, you'd be insane to go anywhere near competing with them. Yeah, I want to come back to the youth thing because this is something that I, I have two teenagers and they both, you know, were on Snapchat, uh, you know, a, a ton over the past couple of years. And I, and I noticed a change in their um, demeanor. I, my, my daughter's one of the happiest person I people I've ever known. And she started, uh, you know, just there's the normal teenage, you know, moodiness and stuff. But uh, I, I started reading about this stuff. And about a month ago, um, I, I, you know, we decided together to to get rid of our smartphones. And she's just got a flip phone. So she doesn't have any social. She doesn't have any internet on the phone. And she's a much happier Person, I noticed an immediate change within 24 hours, and so for me, I'm really worried yeah. about um, kids because and, and the technology. And, and, and my point is that's that's the risk of Facebook fighting, right? Is that you, people are going to be forced to do that because they're they're unwilling to take responsibility for the damage that they've caused, and that's not necessary. This could still be a great stock for the next you know 50 years, but. You know what? They're risking blowing up the whole thing because they're giving people no choice but to stop using it entirely. Yeah, the the great um, and Snapchat's a great example. Snapchat they have this evil thing called Snap Streaks, right? And little kids they basically value their relationships based on how long their Snap Streak is, right? I mean, that's insane. Yeah, right. You can't. They're substituting phony measures of social relationships for real ones. And we, you know, my point is they don't need that. It's just, it's crazy. And you know what? My, my observation here is that having monopolies is always a bad thing, particularly in an innovative area. And, you know, Facebook and Google will say, well, you can't regulate us because the United States needs us to do AI. And I go, wait a minute, guys. You're already an AI. Your AIs are so screwed up. That's the problem. Both of you are so desperate to be successful in China that you'll do anything the Chinese government asks. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is that if we're at a national level concerned about being competitive in AI, who's your competitor? China. Now, do you want your AI effort led by people who are beholden to the Chinese government? I don't think so. You want some new startups with, who are unentangled who will focus on the right stuff. And so I look at all this stuff and I go, the future of Facebook and Google is not the future of U.S. tech. In fact, if anything, they're the, they're the principal barrier to us becoming competitive again. Well, so what are your thoughts on how these companies should be regulated in a healthy way? Well, to be clear, the first thing that I want to see happen, there are two things that can happen that don't require regulation. The first is that the CEOs must testify in open hearings in front of Congress and justify their behavior. That the uh, general counsels who that went to the uh, hearings, uh, particularly the one from Facebook, was just not honest. And so, Zuckerberg and and uh, the CEOs of 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 uh, Alphabet and Twitter need to go there and need to they need to justify in public 
their strategy and their behavior. That's really important for a lot of reasons. The most important one of which is the justifications just won't hold water and people will see right through them, including their employees who have you know, basically fallen for all this. But they're basically idealists who would like to be doing good. And when they hear the justifications out loud, they're going to go, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense at all. That's nuts. And then the second thing that has to happen is that they all must be required to personally contact every single person touched by the Russian manipulation with a, a mess with messages. Should be emails, letters, phone calls, TV ads, everything, every possible medium. And it go, guys, we have bad news. We were manipulated by the Russians. We weren't paying attention. We didn't see it coming. It was our fault. And the problem is because we were manipulated, you were manipulated too. And here is all the evidence. You include every single message that they got. These groups were phony. All this stuff was phony. And it's all harming our country. And as a country, we need to recognize that this is a giant threat, what the Russians did to us. And we got to take it seriously. Those two things have to happen. Then after that, there's a long list of things that, from a regulatory point of view. For example, it's really important to give consumers control of their own data. I think there's nothing wrong with Facebook and Google being able to use consumer data, but the notion that they own it forever, that is, that's something they've asserted I think is just completely wrong and has to stop. Um, there should be a statute of limitations on how long they can use it without compensating the consumer. There has to be much greater transparency of how they use the data. You know, you should be able to get a list of all the people who've rented your data. You should have, you know, the right to see what the algorithms are doing. What are the choices making relative to you? The algorithm says you look like this. And you go, wait a minute, that's not me at all. Well, that's what the algorithm thinks, and that's what it's giving you, right? Those are really, really important things. You know, what I'd really like to do is also change the way that the terms of service work. Right now, the terms of service basically say if you log on, You've accepted the new end-user license agreement, which means they can make changes whenever they want, and you have no control over it, no visibility, have no idea what you're signing up for. And unlike all prior forms of software, they don't give you the option of remaining on the old version, right? They don't give you a legitimate opt-out, which is weird in Facebook's case because 100% of the content is stuff you contributed. So... You should have this right not to accept their new end-user license agreement, to maintain access to your own data without doing that. And you should have the ability to take all your data, the whole social graph, and if you want to take it to a different platform, you should be able to do so. And people go, oh, my God, that would be horrible for Facebook. I go, you must be kidding. Facebook's incredibly convenient. Hardly anybody's going to do that in a way that harms Facebook. But it will allow startups with niche strategies to get started, and that will be a good thing. That'd be good for everybody. And by the way, you know, I still own some Facebook stock, right? I mean, people go, wait a minute, Raja, how can you still own it? I go, I'm still trying to help them get this right. And realistically, I mean, no matter how hard I work, I'm unlikely to be successful. I mean, I think we're basically, as a country, we risk being really, really harmed by this because as a country, we're no longer able to judge What's best, you know? We don't make good choices. And you don't have to look any from the White House to see how bad the choices are that we're making. 
You know, and if, if you know if you like Trump, God bless. But well, you, you sit there and you go, I mean, destroying the State Department because you would rather fire weapons instead of negotiating is nuts. I mean, keep in mind, the Russians are a tiny little country. Their economy is like the size of the light. It's like the size of Texas, right? I mean, it's not that huge. And their army is demoralized. We spend half the world's defense spending. We've hardened all our financial centers. And they looked at us and went, wait a minute, we can use America's own technology and hack the minds of its voters. And they did that for the price of a single fighter aircraft. I mean, getting rid of the State Department is insane. Spending more money on armaments is nuts. That's not the threat we face. The threat we face is that technology allows you to hack the brains of your of your voters, of your citizens. And it's too bad. It shouldn't be that way. Yeah. And so, so the way, what you envision is, is some sort of like a bill, a digital bill of rights for, for users and, and these type of things. Is that, well, I, don't, way you I, I, I don't know. I'm not, the, I'm not smart enough to be able to figure all that out. What I envision is that we need to have a conversation. All the smart people in the country need to get around a table and figure it out. Right. My no. job is, is to come in and go, look, guys, I was part of the problem. Right. If I hadn't met Mark Zuckerberg that day, they would have been owned by Yahoo, which would have killed Facebook and nothing would happen. If I don't introduce Sheryl Sandberg to Mark, I don't know how successful they would have been as a business. So I feel pretty guilty. And I'm sitting there going, I'm willing to take the same risk the employees at Facebook are taking. I still own my stock. Why? Because I want them to understand I this isn't I'm I'm not anti Facebook. I'm anti-destruction of America, right? I'm pro-America. I want to be for America's people. I want us to have an entrepreneurial economy. I want us to have, you know, a, I want the electorate to be free in the broadest possible sense. And I don't want their brains to be controlled by a couple of tech giants whose motivation is purely about profit. I mean, think about this, Jesse. There are literally millions of different things Facebook could put in your newsfeed at any moment in time, right? Literally millions. They could optimize for your personal health or for wealth building or career success or family happiness or any of these things, right? Instead, they optimize for their own profits. And I'm sitting there going, you know, guys, you've made a ton of money. It's been a great ride. How about if we try optimize for something a little bit less destructive than your profits? You're still going to make a ton of money. I mean, Facebook's got 2 billion active users, the same size as, you know, as all of Christianity. YouTube's the same size of all of Islam. I mean, there's no chance of these guys going away. All I'm saying is, how about behaving like good corporate citizens for a change? Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and in terms of Facebook, I, I, I got off of Facebook three or four years ago, and I noticed it just didn't make me feel good when I was using it. Something well, yeah, changed it's weird. along the way. My, yeah. My, part, my partner, Tristan Harris, has actually done a big study of this. And I, I want to say with tens of thousands, but may have been hundreds of thousands of participants. And they discovered after about 10 minutes, everybody becomes less happy on a social app. That up to the first 10 minutes, it's really a joyful experience, and then it falls off, and you feel worse and worse. So it's exactly like doing a one-armed bandit, right? You know, first 10 minutes, you feel great about it, and then 
you become increasingly frustrated and angry at yourself and blah, blah, blah. And it's just – I look at this and I go, it doesn't have to be that way. These guys are so rich, so successful. They have so much control over everything. But there's so much good that they could do if they if they put their put their minds to it. Yeah, um, I I got to change change gears here. You uh, I read somewhere that you play as many as a hundred shows a year with Moon Alice. Is that I, right? Could that be possible? Not any not anymore. Um, okay. I did until last year. Okay, I did until last year. Yeah, no, I uh, Moon Alice Moon Alice has played roughly a thousand shows in in ten and a half years. Yeah, but I'm not playing as much now. The math, I mean, it, it, we we are we are very successful on the West Coast, but the hundred shows a year used to include tours across the country. And as you probably know, the economics—if you're not a big recording artist—the economics of touring are just increasingly horrific. And I'm too old to sleep in the back of a van, and <laughs> uh, you know, so you know, we it, I just we couldn't afford to do it anymore. Yeah. Um, but I still play 50, 60 shows a year. Wow. And you mentioned how. In fact, I've, I've got two. I've got a Moon Alice show on Friday night and then I have a solo acoustic show on on Sunday. Fantastic. And, and this is in New York. No, no, no. They're actually one. They're both at Sweetwater Music Hall, Bob Weir's venue in Mill Valley, California. Oh, North okay. San Francisco. Great. Well, this probably won't be published in time to get that out, but uh, oh, I'm I, not worried about that. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> um, you mentioned how music saved you through the um, the stroke. Um, is there anything through playing music that you've learned um, that's made you a better investor or vice oh, versa? For sure. Uh, yeah, for sure. So you know, so in investing, self awareness is so incredibly important. You need to know. Um. For example, I discovered very early that if I took a red eye, you know, I flew late at night and didn't get a good night's sleep, that my decision making would be affected for literally multiple days afterwards. You know, I'd be cranky and I, I'd be too emotional and that affected my. So I, you know, I learned how to modulate my uh, lifestyle to make my decision making better. Well, it turns out that that was really helpful for music. Then in music, I learned something really interesting about. The importance of being relaxed all the time and always being in the moment, right? And that turns out to have some real value in the investment business because it, you know, there is a tendency to let adrenaline drive you. You know, when you're on a hot roll, you get, you know, you start to think that you're, you have superpowers <laughs> and you have to stay in the moment the same way you would on stage. That, that, you can't, you know, because if you're this really intense jam, you can get carried away and all of a sudden you start playing crap, right? And yeah. and that's that's a disaster. And so you have to sort of stay present and not allow your emotions to hit you on stage. And that turns out to be a really important thing as an investor. And particularly as increasingly the investment business has high velocity components to it, you know, it, right. You know, prog yeah. Programmatic. I mean, you can make so much money in a short period of time that you can just get, you know, you, you suddenly you think you're the Beatles, right? Well, that's the yeah. You have to keep it. Keep watch out for hubris. Not get too high in the highs, too low in the lows. Um, and it's probably, which is just like music. I'm I'm really you know, the investment business. I, I I remember every mistake I've ever made, and I can only remember about a quarter of the things I did that worked out really well. Yeah. And it's really interesting. And that turns out to be really, really bad when you're playing music. Hmm. When you're playing music, you got to remember that once you've made a mistake, 
You can't take it back, so you shouldn't think about it. Right. right. What you should do is go and practice some more. Make sure you don't make it a, again. Right. <laughs> right. And that 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 cuts both. That goes back in the investment business because the, for a while I was so hyper self critical, the risk paralyzing myself. Yeah. But it is important to always, just as in music, I go back and listen to the tape after the show, see what I got right, what I got wrong. And I've always done that in investing, too. Whether I got it right or wrong, I go back and look at it and figure out where did I make the good choice, where did I make the bad choice. That seems like a common thing among all successful investors is is learning from your mistakes and moving forward. You, well, you learn a lot for, more from mistakes than you do from from good times. In fact, yeah. I think my career wouldn't have been nearly as good if tech had been a market leading sector when I joined T. Rowe Price, yeah, because it was a laggard almost through the entire eighties, you know, I had to learn some skills that my contemporaries didn't have to learn because they had a rising tide. Right, right, yeah. My, you know, it's it sounds like you know from listening to you know your stories, a lot of. Um, fortuitous events you know that uh, helped pave the way for your success but a lot of that also is uh has got to be humility i you know you've you you've had a, f- a fabulous career you've been really generous with your time today and appreciate that um thank you so much for taking the time yeah i'm sorry i'm hor- horribly long-winded and i apologize for that that's i must have had too much diet coke or something Oh, it's fantastic. I really appreciate it. I think there's, there's a ton of, ton of great stuff in here. Um, and uh, again, thank you so much for taking the time. Appreciate it. No, hey, Jesse, my pleasure. What a fun thing. And I hope, uh, I hope your audience gets some value because, you know, sometimes people say, uh, you know, how do I reverse engineer your career? And I go, don't bother. Just everybody should have their own career and enjoy it, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, because if you reverse engineer mine, you have to have a couple of strokes and, you know, you got to almost get fired <laughs> at zero price and you got to have all, you got to get thrown out of Silver Lake. And it's like, you know, I wouldn't wish any of those things on anybody. Yeah. Well, it's a wonderful story. I, I get a lot of uh, younger, younger uh, people asking about how to get involved in the, in the industry and, and how to, you know, people get their start. So I think that's, that's uh, just fabulous that uh, you, you were able to, to share all that. And I think it's, it's uh, super valuable. Well, I mean, so you know, you got to get lucky. I mean, let's face it if without luck, none of this works. And, um, and you got to really, really want it. You know, there's nothing about the investment business that rewards laziness. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that I will let you go. I've taken up way too much of your time already, Roger, and I really appreciate well, it. Well, I'm excited. So. I'm going down to City Winery to see my good friends in Hot Tuna. So uh, it'll be a musical evening. Awesome. Fantastic. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and charts related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you so much for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.